You are now listening to the March 6th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and divine intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we will share the story of two kings, Jeroboam II, the 13th king of Israel, and the story of Zechariah, the 14th king of Israel. The accounts of Jeroboam II appear in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 29, and the accounts of Zechariah appear in 2 Kings chapter 15, Verses 8 to 12. Jeroboam II, the thirteenth king of Israel, was the son of Jehoash, the twelfth king of Israel. He became king of Israel in the fifteenth year of Amaziah, king of Judah, and reigned over Israel for forty-one years. For eleven years he ruled over Israel with his father Jehoash, and then after his father's death he continued on for 30 more years. That makes Jeroboam II the longest reigning king among all the kings of Israel. Before we continue, let's recollect the story of Jehoash, father of Jeroboam II. We shared that Jehoash knew that God was the might of Israel and the one who protected Israel. In fact, he became afraid when prophet Elisha was about to die. He became fearful that God would no longer come to his rescue once Elisha was gone. When Jehoash came to see Elisha on his dying bed, Elisha tried to give him hope. He ordered Jehoash to open the window to the east and shoot an arrow. Jehoash did what he was told. Then Elisha prophesied that Jehoash would be victorious in the war against Aram. However, he lacked trust and passion. Subsequent to that, Elisha told Jehoash to strike the ground. He struck only three times rather than many times. Disappointed, Elisha told Jehoash that he would only win three times in the wars against Aram. Jehoash experienced the grace of God spoken through the prophet during his life. Yet he did evil in the sight of God. God wanted Jehoash and Israel to realize their sins through Aram's oppression and turn back to him. Nonetheless, they continued to do evil to the end and did not turn back to God. Therefore, it is not too hard to conjecture that Jeroboam II grew up watching his father Jehoash doing evil things before God. In that regard, It's not surprising that the Bible tells us that Jeroboam II also did evil in the sight of God. 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 24 tells us that he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, who made Israel to commit sin against God. 
Then could we say that the fact Jeroboam II did evil before God was because of his father? He just followed in the footsteps of his father, and he had no opportunities to meet God on his own. Well, that's not the case. In fact, Jeroboam II reigned over Israel the longest among all the kings of Israel. He did many things, and God looked after Israel during his time. For instance, Jeroboam II recovered the territory of Israel as wide as the time of Solomon with God's grace, and he enjoyed prosperity. The time of Jeroboam II's reign was also the time of the prophets Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. Among them, prophet Jonah had delivered God's word of hope that Israel would be healed. The faithful God fulfilled this prophecy and waited for Israel to turn back to him. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 clearly record that it was God who led Israel to recover the land during the time of Jeroboam II. Here are the verses 26 to 27 from 2 Kings chapter 14. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say, he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Apparently, at the time Israel was hurting badly, God saw how the people of Israel were harshly and unbearably afflicted with suffering. God also noted how they did not have a deliverer, and God said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. God was merciful and chose Jeroboam II as his instrument to deliver the oppressed people of Israel. Clearly, Jeroboam II witnessed how the prophecy spoken through prophet Jonah came true. He experienced God's grace as his instrument. Unfortunately, despite all of these, Jeroboam II did not turn back to God. Rather, he continued to worship idols. He allowed not only himself to engage in idol worshiping, but also the people of Israel. Searching in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 23 to 29, we see that the details of his evil deeds are not recorded there. Nonetheless, these verses tell us clearly that he did all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth. Actually, we might think that Jeroboam II was not so different from the other kings before him. After all, all the previous kings of Israel worshipped idols. But when we think about the implications of multiple prophets in action at that time, as in Jonah, Hosea, and Amos, we can begin to realize how seriously and desperately Israel had fallen at that time. As recorded in the books of Hosea and Amos, Israel reveled in idol worship and apostasy. They had deserted God. Jeroboam II was in power for 41 long years. However, the Bible gives us only seven verses about his reign. That may be one indication for how despicable his actions had to have been in committing evil in the sight of God. Though he experienced God's graceful intervention, 
Jeroboam II did not turn back to God and died in sin as an evil and spiritually deprived king. When Jeroboam II died, his son Zechariah became the 14th king of Israel. His accounts are recorded in 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 8-12. to The Bible tells us that he lasted only six months as king over Israel. The Bible also informs us that Zechariah also did evil in the sight of God, just as his forefathers. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to commit sin against God. Zechariah's life came to an abrupt end when Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against him and killed him. The killing happened in a rather dramatic way as Shalom executed him in the open in front of the people. Shalom then became the 15th king of Israel. With that, the house of Jehu's dynasty came to an end. This was in fulfillment of God's word as appears in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30. Jehu, the 10th king of Israel, destroyed the house of Ahab, who caused Israel to worship idols. Jehu did right in the sight of God by following God's command. God promised him that his descendants to the fourth generation would sit on the throne of Israel. So even though Jehu eventually fell from grace and began committing offensive acts against God, God allowed Jehu's family to rule over Israel through Jehu, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, and Zechariah, four generations altogether. God blessed those who did right in his sight. Once he made a promise, he fulfilled that promise faithfully. God continued to offer mercy and grace even to those who did evil in his sight so that they might turn back to him. Alas, despite having experienced God's mercy and grace, Jeroboam II did not turn back to God to the very end. His son Zechariah was not much different. He also worshipped idols and did evil. He died in his own sin. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Four Steps to Full Life. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Let's read it together. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, if you are taking notes, here's one truth 
that I want you to take away from what we just read. Here it is. Life is futile apart from knowing and enjoying God as Father. So first, where we see this in God's Word, in verse 17, the Bible says to Christians, if you call on God as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So remember we talked about this two weeks ago. Christians are foreigners in this country, any country. That's the team we're on, elect exiles, knowing that you were ransomed, saved from, and we expect the next word to be, you're saved from what? Sin, or judgment, or death. But verse 18 says, you were ransomed, saved from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Huh. You see this truth here. So Christian, you have been ransomed, saved from futility, from futile ways. Like that's a strong word. From pointless, meaningless ways that were passed on to you by your forefathers, people in this world. So you used to live a pointless meaningless, futile life, but now you've been ransomed from that. You've been saved from futility. By who? By God, who is your Father. So three times in 1 Peter 1, God is referred to as Father. Christians are referred to as, remember back in verse 3, those who are born again. It's the same language in verse 23. Again, since you have been born again, and in verse 14 of what we just read, we are called as Christians obedient what? Children. So this is what a Christian is, a child of God, someone who knows God as Father. I've shared on multiple occasions now this quote from J.I. Packer in his excellent book that I always highly recommend, Knowing God, and Packer writes, what is a Christian? Like just basic question, what is a Christian? The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So this truth is evident in 1 Peter. Life is futile apart from knowing and enjoying God as Father. Now, let's think about how significant and potentially even offensive this statement is. First, the offense. What I'm saying, based on the Bible, is that your life is and will be ultimately futile, meaningless, pointless, if you live it apart from knowing and enjoying God as Father. 
Like, just let that land on every one of our ears and every one of our hearts. Like, I think about non-Christian friends and family members who are listening right now. Like, if this is true, then your life right now is futile. In the next few minutes, I want to show you four steps to full life based on God's word. And they all revolve around knowing and enjoying him as father each and every day of your life. So that, that's what I'm after. That's what I believe God is after in this text. He wants you, just let it soak in, the God of the universe wants you right where you are to experience life to the full, to experience abundant, meaningful life, life that gets the point. And who among us doesn't want that? Like who among us, when choosing between a feudal life and a full life, would say, I'm going to go with feudal. Like meaningful life or meaningless life. I'd like to be meaningless. Like at the end of your life, when you die, do you, do you want to look back and say, I got the point or I, I totally missed the point? Like nobody says, I want to get to the end, look back and think, man, I'm so glad I wasted it. According to 1 Peter, that's what God wants to save you, ransom you from. So how? Four steps to full life. And just pull these out of the hat. There are four clear commands from God in this text. And these steps flow directly from these commands. So I would encourage you to write these down. It's like if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to take notes. Like I'd say these are probably worth writing down. If you want a full life, it's probably worth writing down. Here's four steps to full life according to God. And remembering these and putting them into practice. And then one more thing I'll show you before we get into the four steps. This whole passage starts with the word, therefore. And whenever we see that, we know in the Bible that's referring to what came before this. In light of what has just been said, do these four things. So these four steps hinge on what we read and we saw last week in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12, which is why, so I'm going to pull out this rope one more time out here uh, just to, to put it before us and to remind us what we talked about last week. If you did not get to listen or watch last week, I would encourage you to, not because it was like an amazing sermon, but because it was an amazing text that talked about our, so we talked about our life like this blue part of this rope that extends forever in that direction and eternity past and forever in this direction and eternity future. And this little blue part on the rope represents your life, my life right now. And we talked last week about, so how do you hold on to hope amidst temptations, trials, uh, temptations to lose trust, hope, faith in God in the middle of this. And we talked about how you do that is you look back at God's love for you from before time even began. Look back at all those who have served you by pointing you to hope in God. Look back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus who died for you, rose from the dead to guarantee your inheritance forever in heaven, which leads us to look forward to the inheritance that's waiting for us in eternity, the glory that will be given to all who hope and trust in God. 
So Peter says, therefore, in light of that, so how do you live here in the blue? So that's what verses 13 through 25 are after. How do you live right here? How do you experience life to the full right here? How do you make this count? And the answer is, therefore, in light of all that, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's the first command, the first step to full life. Just write it right here. One, first step to full life, hope in God. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. You get later, verse 21 says, so your faith or hope are in God, hope in God. Now, That's an interesting command, isn't it? Because hope is like a desire, like an emotion similar to a feeling. So how do you you command somebody to feel a certain way? Like, feel this emotion. Now, do it. It's like, uh, okay, I'll try. How do I do that? And God tells us how to do this. Actually tells us here in verse 13 how to hope. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So God is telling us here that there are things you and I can and need to do in our minds in order to cultivate hope in our hearts. So hope is, this is so important, according to God, hope is not some passive emotion that you can't control. Like, I just don't have hope, and I don't know how to get it. Like, no, there's a way to get it, to experience it. It's not something you either have or you don't. No, you can control, cultivate, create hope in your heart by disciplining your mind, your thoughts, by not letting your mind be ruled by thoughts that are contrary to hope in God. It's this picture of being sober. Like, a drunk person is disoriented, right? They're not thinking straight. And God is saying, guard your mind from disoriented thinking that pulls you away from hope in God. We, we talked about this in Philippians chapter four and the battle with anxiety in our minds, with worry and all kinds of other battles that we have in our mind. Do you remember this? In a message on Jesus and anxiety a couple months ago, we walked through an acrostic called STOP, S-T-O-P. So when you are tempted to worry, when you're tempted to be anxious, and today I'll add, when you are tempted to feel hopeless, stop. Remember what these letters stand for. S, seek God in prayer about everything. Philippians chapter four, verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. So this is how to hope in God. Seek God in prayer about everything. Lift up all the things that cause you to feel hopeless. Just lift them up to God. Then T, trust God through prayers of thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So stop and thank God for all that we saw last week, his love for you from the, before the foundation of the world, his promises to you about the future, his power that will guard and guide you to the end, trust God through prayers of thanksgiving, then oh, this is what we're seeing here in 1 Peter 1.13, open your mind to that which comes from God. 
The way Philippians 4.9 put it was whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about those things. So this is simple. I'm not saying it's easy. Like our minds are a battlefield. But the instruction God is giving us in this battle is simple. Think about what you're thinking about. If you spend all your time, follow this, if you spend all your time thinking about what's going on in this world, various things that are going wrong, have gone wrong, might go wrong in your life, in the world, if you fill your mind with these things, you are going to feel hopeless, anxious, discouraged. But you set your mind on who God is, on how God loves you, promises from God to you, you know what starts to happen? Hope starts to rise. Hope in God. So guard your mind. Like don't spend so many hours like looking at a screen, just immersing yourself in the stuff of this world and expect hope to rise in your heart. Don't do it. No, immerse your mind in God and his word, the wonder of who he is and what he has said to you. Hope will start to rise. You see how important your mind is. Even, even back in verse 14 in 1 Peter 1, you read it, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So passions, emotions that are driven by lack of knowledge, what's going on in your mind. So Peter's saying, you used to live with emotions that were driven by a mind that was immersed in this world. Like you didn't know what you know now. You didn't know who God is and the hope that's found in him. But now you know. Now you know him, his word. So don't forget, like fix your mind on God, his grace, his promises, his love for you now. You know this now. So don't forget it. Keep opening your mind to that which comes from God. And then... Remember the P in this acrostic, practice the word of God. In other words, then live your life according to what God's word says, not according to the ways of this world. You don't live according to the futility, hopelessness of this world. You live on a higher plane. You live with hope in God. So the first step to a full life is to hope in God. And the way you generate this hope in your heart is by filling your mind with the love and the promises and the truth and the wonder of God and his word from eternity past to eternity future. Then, okay, so now second step. So it's not just steps you take in your mind and your heart. Like verse 13 said, prepare your minds, preparing your minds for action. So what's the action? Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting from God's word to his people centuries before. So here's the second step to a full life. So one, hope in God. Two, be holy like God. Second step to a Full life, be holy like God. Now, there's a whole sermon, actually many, many sermons on just this phrase. For the sake of time today, 
I just ask you to think with me about the phrase, like father, like son. Like that statement can be a really good thing if a father is a really good father, right? Like if a father is known for his integrity, then somebody observes his son's life and says, like father, like son. Like that's a good thing for that son. But it's not a good thing if a father is evil, right? If a father is known for being prideful and selfish, lack of integrity, someone observes his son's life and says, like father, like son. It's not a good thing for that son. Well, here's the picture of God. He is the perfect father. And for God to be holy means that God is perfect in all of his ways. He is perfectly loving, perfectly just, perfectly merciful, perfectly wise, perfectly faithful, perfectly good. We could go on and on. And if that's the case, then don't you and I want it to be said of us, like Father, with a capital F, Father, like Father, like Son, or Daughter. Like we want to be holy. Why? Because we want to be like our Father. We want to be loving and just and merciful and kind and wise and faithful, don't we? Like who of us thinks, I want to be hateful and unjust and I want to be a fool and I want to be evil. I know, like we want to reflect the character of God. Certainly as Christians, think about my life. I, I, want, I want my wife and my kids to see the character of God in me. I want you to see the character of God in me. Be holy like God. To be like God is the best way to be. And then, so third step to a full life, and this is where things get really interesting, even baffling. Verse 17 says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then here's the third command, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by, from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Whoa, what a statement. You gotta see what this means because the third step, so if you're taking notes, third step to a full life is to be fearful of God. Be fearful of God. Now, as soon as I write that, you might start to think what I start to think. Wait, I thought I wasn't supposed to be afraid. Like all throughout scripture, don't fear, don't fear, don't be afraid. And besides, how can I hope in God if I'm afraid of God? Like how can I live in hope and fear at the same time? Like that's what I'm asking when I, when I read this. And when you ask that question, the answer is awesome. So think about this with me. It is right and good to 
fear someone when you love someone. Let me say that one more time. Like it is right and good to fear someone when you love someone in this way. Simplest illustration I can think of is my dad who is in heaven right now and who I miss constantly. There are so many days, particularly recently, when I would love to call him up and ask for wisdom. I loved my dad so much that I feared disobeying or dishonoring him. Not because of what he would do to me, although I knew he would show appropriate discipline to me, which I would rather not experience, but even more so because of what my disobedience would be saying to him, that I don't honor him despite his love for me. I can think of another example. I love my wife, Heather, so much that I fear, I dread doing anything that would dishonor her or her love for me. Like the way she loves me, how much I love her, I don't even wanna think about doing something that would show her that she is not precious and her love is not valuable to me. Fear, I dread that. So that's the sense of fear we're seeing here in our relationship with God. So in one sense, yes, there's a fear of God as judge for whom we will one day stand to give an account for all our deeds. There's a whole other sermon there on what the day of judgment involves, though to be clear, all who are in Jesus do not fear ultimate judgment, being separated from God's love for all of eternity. Jesus has paid the price for our sins. But that's just it. Notice the emphasis here. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout this time as an exile, elect exile, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. You see the relationship between fear and love here? Knowing that God in his love sent his son to shed his blood for your sins. So just just pause there. So non-Christian friend or family member, like here's what that means. We have all sinned against God. We all deserve judgment from God for all of eternity. Everlasting condemnation for our sins. That's what we deserve. But God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to pay the price for our sins. To die for us. To rise from the grave so that anyone anywhere, including anyone today, who trusts in Jesus can be saved from all their sins and restored to relationship with God for full, eternal, everlasting life. And this full, eternal, everlasting life is only possible through the blood of Jesus who died on the cross for us. So I invite you today, like put your trust in Jesus, his blood to cover over you, your sins, to bring you into relationship with God as father. And then when you do, and for all who have, for all who know God as father, then fear living in a way that shows that Jesus' blood and God's love for you are not precious to you. Don't live like the fear, disobeying, dishonoring God as father 
as you give yourself to sin when God gave his son to free you from that. He's given his son to free you from this. Fear living, like that's a light thing to you. Love for God produces that kind of fear of God. First Peter 1 Peter 1.17 saying, fear saying that to God. You don't want to, you don't want to say that to God. Don't live like that. Fear taking his sacrifice for your sin, the blood of his son, and using it as a license to sin, to run after the things of this world, to put your hope in the things of this world. Like, don't do it with love for God in light of his love for you. Be fearful of God. And don't miss how this is step to the full life. Because when you love God like this, when you know the depth and the value, the preciousness of his love for you like this, then you are experiencing what it means to know and enjoy God as your father, which is the most awesome way to live. And nothing in this world can compare with knowing and enjoying God as your father. Like this intensity of love and fear in a relationship. This intensity of love and fear in this relationship with my dad is why I miss him so much. This intensity of love and fear in my relationship with Heather is why I enjoy her so much. And this intensity of love and fear in relationship with God is critical to knowing and enjoying life to the full with God as your father. And those words, our father, lead right into the final step to the full life. So hope in God, be holy like God, and be fearful of God in these ways. And then, fourth, verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So here's the fourth command. Love one another. Earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Wow, that is so good. Follow this. Fourth step to a full life. Number four, Love like God. Love like God. This phrase, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that's talking about how people become Christians, how they become followers of Jesus by trusting in Jesus to save, purify them from their sins, to follow him as Lord. It's paralleled by the end here, uh, verse 20 and verse 23, when you, since you have been born again, through the living and abiding word of God. So what's so awesome here is the way God links their conversion to Christ with their affection for one another in the church. And don't miss it. Like when we think about holiness, we so often think about holiness is like not doing this or not doing that in this world, which is true. We flee a variety of things in this world. We've been saved from. But here, God is saying holiness is defined in what you do in this world to show love for one another. God says, my word has created not just new life in you, my word has created a new love in you, a sincere love, like family 
brotherly love. To hear God say to us in his word today, you're actually saved for a sincere brotherly love, like for the purpose of loving each other. And my word gives you supernatural power to do this in otherworldly ways. But I was reminded this week of something John Newton once wrote. So in case you don't recognize that name, John Newton served as a captain on slave ships before he became a follower of Jesus. The word of God changed his heart. Then he began working against slavery. He's probably most well known for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace. He wrote many other things though also, including a letter called On Controversy. So a pastor had written Newton saying that this pastor was going to write an article criticizing another pastor. And Newton replied with some cautions for him to consider, not just in his writing, but in his heart. And one of the things Newton talked about in his reply was viewing this other pastor here in light of eternity. So Newton wrote, I'll put it up here on the screen. If you account him a believer... Though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, so this is the future. Listen to this statement, it's so good. In a little while, you will meet him in heaven and he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. Is that not a good word? Like Christians, view each other that way. Even Christians you disagree with, deal gently with them. Do not treat them harshly as the world would have you. Instead, anticipate the day when you will love him or her more than you love even your closest friend or family member right now. So love him or her today as one with whom you will be happy in Christ together forever. That's truly an otherworldly love. That is a critical step to a full life. Which is right where this text lands. For all flesh is like grass, And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, this world is fading. So live like it. Live like it. Like if I could just look into the eyes of every single person, God has just told you right where you are. God has just spoken to you that your life will be futile apart from knowing and enjoying him as father. God has just told you that your life will be 
full when you know and enjoy him as father, which means hoping in him, being holy like him, being fearful of him, and loving like him. So what are you going to do with what God just said? The way I see it, you have two options. Wherever you are, like one, you can choose not to believe what God has just said. You can say, I reject God. I reject him. I reject the hope, love he offers. I don't believe in what Jesus has done for me. Or maybe a variation of this option would be to say, I guess I believe some of that. Maybe all of it. But I'd still rather live my own way. Functionally, I'd rather live apart from knowing and enjoying God as Father. And with either or any variation of this option, I want to urge you today to not make that choice. I want to urge you with everything in me because I believe God is speaking to your heart right now saying, don't do it. Based on God's word, I want to urge you not to choose futility with this life you've been given. Don't miss the whole point. In a way that at any moment could be today, could be tomorrow, might lead you to eternal, everlasting judgment, condemnation, separation from the love of God at any moment. Like I urge you, don't make that choice. I urge you today, second option, like choose life. Choose life. Feel like Joshua chapter 24, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life, lose life. God wants you to have life. And it's only possible through knowing and enjoying him as father. And it's possible for you, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, what your past is, what you're walking through right now, he wants you to experience full abundant life. I invite you, trust and hope in him. Believe Believe he is who he says he is. He loves you like he's saying he loves you. And put your hope in him, your trust, your faith in him today. To hope in you, be holy like you, to fear you, and to love like you and experience life with you as our Father. I pray this based on your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Divine Intervention. What is that sound of crying? It was an outcry of the sorrow deep within from long ago. The sorrowful sound of the man's cry was heartbreaking to hear. His wailing made his entire body shake severely, and his uncontrollable tears covered his face in an instant. The sound of his wailing spread throughout the entire palace. He was always composed, knew how to control his emotions, and was not shaken by circumstances. Even so, such firmness was crumbled in one moment. He was not his usual self. There was nothing to stop his wailing. His emotional state and the glances of the people surrounding him didn't matter. He gave in to his emotions and cried like a child. His cry was an outburst of all the sadness, suffering, and resentment he bottled up for the past 22 years. From Joseph's story, the scene of his wailing in Genesis chapter 45 makes me teary. In another sense, it also makes me feel relieved. Joseph was perfect, faithful, and honest. Nonetheless, when he wailed, it made him seem more human. Joseph's cry let out all his emotions and nothing was hidden. I think this was the moment he was healed of his deep hurt. At the young age of 17, Joseph was abandoned by his brothers. He was sold as a slave in Egypt and later became a high official. These past 22 years of his life was a period of great hurt, sadness, and suffering. His ten brothers came to Egypt to obtain food due to the famine, and Joseph recognized them at first glance. Yet, his brothers did not recognize Joseph, who had become a high official in Egypt. It was probably because it was something they couldn't have ever imagined. To test his brother's heart, Joseph made an elaborate plan. He kept his second brother Simeon hostage and told them to bring Benjamin, who was the brother of his own flesh and blood. Joseph carefully read his brother's heart, and upon encountering Benjamin, his contained emotions burst out. How would the brothers have felt in front of Joseph's crying? As they saw Joseph crying, they read his heart, which was indescribable with words. They could see how Joseph endured all the years of hardship, loneliness, and suffering. They saw how deep the scar of abandonment and betrayal was in Joseph's life. They saw how Joseph had to ride the wave of hardship and loneliness in life to get to his position as a high official. The brothers were astonished when they found out that their abandoned brother had become second in command to Pharaoh. They were bowed down like sinners before the crying Joseph and felt sorry and embarrassed. 
they were also fearful that Joseph might get revenge on them. After Joseph became a powerful official, he didn't send news to his hometown or find his family. He married in Egypt and named his first son Manasseh, which means, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. We can assume that even though Joseph's terrible experience led him to become a high official, it still left a deep hurt in his heart. Although he was acknowledged everywhere due to his faithfulness, the days he spent in prison were unbearable. In that dark and damp prison, he had to spend days as a sinner who was falsely accused. It was such hard work to swallow the resentment he felt. He probably went through much agony and suffering to erase all the hurtful memories which came to his mind every day. He had to control and hold on to his emotions in order for him to put his discouragement aside and arise from his dark and stifling reality where the future was unknown. If God had not been there, he probably would have crumbled. Joseph might have prayed daily and made every effort so he could forgive. He had to do everything he could to be free from this hurt. However, it wasn't possible solely with determination. Therefore, he chose to forget about it. And yet, it wasn't easy to forget. Within his heart, he always longed for his father and brother Benjamin. Along with that, his emotion of loneliness, resentment, and anger coexisted. Then his brothers appeared and they all bowed before him. The sight before Joseph's eyes made him shudder. It was a dreamlike reality that made him automatically think of the dream he had long ago. Joseph's heart seemed like it would burst and he couldn't hide the awe of God's providence. In his young years, he was honest and innocent, but he lacked consideration and wisdom. He boasted about the dream he had to his brothers. Joseph dreamed that his brother's sheaves of grain bowed down to his sheaf of grain, and the sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed down to him. Since Joseph solely received all of his father's love, he thought he was the only special person. He couldn't read his brother's heart and eventually resulted in receiving jealousy and hatred from them. He thought his dream was crushed and ridiculed. However, at this moment, Joseph shed tears as he came to a realization. Before Joseph, who was refined like gold in the fiery furnace, God's dream was unfolding. At that moment, Joseph's anger, resentment, and suffering began to change to amazement, thanksgiving, and overwhelming awe. He told his brothers who were in fear to come near. Then he said this, Brothers, do not be distressed with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, 
Lord over his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. You tried to harm me, but God changed it to good and saved many people like today. Joseph made a great confession of faith. God allowed Joseph to make such a confession of faith. That's right. God sent Joseph ahead. He changed the result of a human's evil act into good and made Joseph successful. Also, through Joseph, God fulfilled his great salvation. At last, Joseph was able to fully understand God's dream about his life. It wasn't a human's dream of ambition and vanity, but God's dream to save lives. Joseph became a true dream interpreter. Not with a person's eye, but with God's vision, he had an insight of faith to view his entire life. He couldn't overcome the hurt and feeling of retaliation with reason and willpower. And yet, an amazing miracle happened where everything changed to praise and thanksgiving. The ability of interpretation brought about this miracle. With God, he interpreted life with faith. This amazing dream interpretation melted the cold, icy pain into warm tears of forgiveness. Dear beloved listeners, in our lives, there's pain, hurt, resentment, loneliness, and suffering. Even so, as people of faith, we can reinterpret our lives. When we look at our lives with faith, as stated in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, the sad parts of our lives are all being changed to different colors. We are people who experience the miracle of hardship and suffering changing to thanksgiving and praise. Happiness is not necessarily found in life itself, but in the ability to interpret lives. Only God, who is the Lord of our lives, can give us the ability to interpret. I want us to become true dream interpreters like Joseph. I want us to reinterpret our lives with God's will and vision instead of a person's thought and vision so we can give new meaning not only in our lives but other people's lives as well. I really want us, who are God's people, to realize that we are in the midst of God's providence of great salvation. I want us to dream of God's glorious, eternal dream of His kingdom coming here on earth. Today's divine intervention was about Joseph. I'll see you next week. Be blessed in the Lord.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.